But now, it's a great pleasure to get this opportunity. Mostly I've been talking to peers, to adult groups, as Nigel has said. But this exploring into making contact with your age, the school age, is to be exciting. We are talking about, as he said then, the emerging of a different world view in our time. Both my talks today, this one, which has been called Poetry in the Awakened Mind, and tonight to the Philosophical Society, are both aspects of this vision. I want you to realize that. This is a phenomenon that is happening during your generation. It's the most curious, the most extraordinary thing. This is not somebody's thought out idea. This is not an intellectually conceived hope of improving society or anything like that. Something extraordinary is actually happening inside our thinking. There is really being a turnabout in the center of human consciousness. Now, this generation, I therefore speak with some sense of urgency to you young people who are going to be at the top of your form at the end of the century. Because, as you may have realized, a great many people who have vision or powers of prophecy, scientific knowledge, tapping of deeper wisdom, are foreseeing that we are entering a time of notable change on all levels. Some of these indications at first sight sound a bit frightening. Earthquake, volcanoes, shaking up of the earth, change of climate and all that and challenging of the structure of our society, financial, political, which can be disturbing. And if you only look at what the ordinary news gives you, it obviously for you people is rather a kind of army. What of our generation given you, so to speak? A fairly doubtful time. But what is emerging is a different world view. A different view of what life is about. And this amounts to a grasping of the oneness of everything. That there is, as Nigel said at the outset, recognized a scientific conception 
that evolution is tending to the creation of ever greater and greater wholes. Everything is complexifying into more and more wonderful wholes with the implication that the end of evolution is going to be that things integrate into an ever more beautiful whole. But there is another way of looking at this holistic trend which really is a reawakening of the ancient mystery knowledge the ancient wisdom that was held in the initiation temples of Egypt and of Greece right up to the beginning of our time which was a knowledge and a certainty which certain people who were initiated into higher knowledge experienced with an absolute inner certainty namely a sense that the universe is a great mind not a mechanism of gaseous or dead bodies that essentially it is a great thought now this is not only mystics talking this was first put by Sir James Jeans, the great physicist when I was young I can't quite get the quotation I must get it clear so I can give it to you but that it begins to look as if everything is pointing now towards the universe being not a mechanism but a thought what we see physically as a manifestation of thinking divine thinking divine mind that all the manifestations of nature which are so wonderful trees and mountains and waters and crystals and birds and everything are in fact the externalization of living ideas <coughs> poured from some unthinkable <coughs> source from the source God is only the name for that which the human mind cannot apprehend beyond what we can know but this is what the older civilizations have always known and what we have forgotten note that thing ours is really the first culture that has almost entirely forgotten this vision and we become a great materialistic culture with a marvelous technology but in those Greek days what did they do now at Delphi or in the Egyptian temples the initiating priests were able to see people certain people possessed the capacity for higher knowledge they could see by the aura surrounding invisibly the life forces around a man but that man was capable 
upholding the higher knowledge and they would invite him to come and undergo the necessary ordeals of training to be initiated into higher knowledge and finally it culminated in what was called a temple sleep you were laid out in a sarcophagus in the temple and the priests knew how to draw out of you your ego the soul body in you the personality in you and almost all the life forces that hold all the particles of your body together so that you lay as one dead in suspended animation for three days and at the end of three days they knew how then to call you back again because you the thing inside you that can say I that you're possessed was drawn out and for three days it moved in the higher worlds of consciousness in the spiritual worlds and after three days was called back and you rose from death you came alive again and woke up but you now remembered where you'd be now realize of course that at sleep you the thing that can say I in every one of us is out of the body it is in fact moving in the spiritual worlds but you don't remember the thing about it because the memory <coughs> is really stored in what we now call the etheric body that's a sort of structure of vital forces which hold together the particles that make up your physical body when you die the etheric body pulls out and the body breaks up and returns to dust but the memory is stored in this etheric body and, that, and, the, and when you're asleep your tired body is being restored to its energy by the etheric body and therefore you don't remember where you've been but in the temple sleep the etheric body was pulled out too so that the candidate for initiation lay as one dead he was dead but just enough light there for him to be drawn back again so he then woke up and remembered where he'd been and then he knew by direct experience that the thing that could say I in him was a droplet of the divine source he was a spiritual being among spiritual beings and as a divine droplet he knew that he was totally immortal that spark of divinity simply could not die it always was being it, it always has been and it always will be and so he came back again into life with a new courage to face the difficulties of life because he knew that his sojourn on the earth was a sort of training for development of this immortal divine being 
Now, in Greece, in Egypt, if you revealed the secrets of the mystery, you were killed. One of the reasons why Socrates was killed was that he, his teaching, he was teaching out and putting out the secrets of the mystery schools. The general public couldn't take this knowledge direct like this. And therefore, the ordinary people were taught by means of myths and legends and even fairy stories and <coughs> drama that came out of the myths. Because the myths all when you begin to understand this worldview, you discover that all the great myths of mankind, the great legends, are telling the same story, which is basically that the human being, the real entity in you and in me, is a spiritual being, a droplet of God, belonging to a world of light. Immortal, imperishable, and it can never die. Its body can die, be drowned, smashed, burnt, anything. But that only releases the immortal spark back to the world of light. And the myths are all telling us the same thing, that we come down into this world here and go through all sorts of trials and ordeals before we, in due course, are released back again to that higher world. The whole of life here is a kind of initiation. And this is all taught in the myths. Indeed, I think I've spent a very short time, I'm going to tell you one of the shortest and simplest of one of the Grimm's fairy stories, because this illustrates what I'm saying. Every one of the myths and the legends, and for that matter most of Shakespeare, has the inner symbolical enshrining of these great truths which matter desperately for our understanding in our materialistic age. Now listen to this. There was once a beautiful princess. When did she live? When indeed did she not live? And she, her home was in a beautiful palace high in the mountains. And her cruel father, her apparently cruel father, threw her out, exiled her, and she had to go down into the land of the dark forest, taking with her nothing but three walnut shells, one containing a robe made out of the light of the sun, another a robe made out of the light of the stars, and a third the light of the moon. She went down into the night 
into the dark forest. Lost there among the wild beasts, she hid herself in a hollow oak tree. And at dawn, the huntsman from the country she had come to found her, fished her out of the tree, asked her who she was, and she found she had forgotten <coughs> her name and forgotten where she came from. So he took her back to his lord's castle, and since she couldn't account for herself, she was put as a scullery girl to work in the lowest, most menial tasks in the palace, in the castle. Allowed at the festivals of the year, New Year, Midsummer, and so forth, to come and dance in the ball, putting on one of these robes from the light of the stars, or the light of the moon, or the sun. And there she met the prince, coming from that higher world, who saw her, they fell in love with each other, and in due course, after various adventures which she will came to, they married, and he took her back again to the realm from which she came. Now, short little uh, tale, which ends, yes, and if they're not dead yet, well, they're living still. Will you just note there, I didn't start once upon a time there was a princess, but there was a princess where did she live? Where indeed did she not live? When did this take place? When indeed was it not? And not just they all lived happily ever after, <coughs> but if they're not dead yet, well, they are living still. In other words, you see, this is a hint that we are dealing with some symbolism which is totally outside time, not the ordinary time scale. You can treat it as a jolly good story, but something in you, your, the subconscious in you, knows that this story is telling you a great truth about yourself. That's why the myths and the fairy stories appeal so much. You don't need to analyze them, but I am going to analyze this one. You can take it. The princess is the soul. In the castle of her royal father, which is really the heaven world, she is thrown out, apparently cruelly, symbol of the fall of man, and she has to come down into the dark forest, which is always in all the midst, that and the sea, is the symbol of the passage through all the difficulties of life. And they are in the darkness of the forest with all the beasts symbolizing the darker emotions. She hides herself in the hollow tree. Can you see? The hollow tree is really the hollow skull. The soul hides itself within the intellectual consciousness and it forgets where it came from and what its name is when challenged. And she therefore is put in the lowest, most menial work down in the world of matter. An immortal spiritual being has come down and been embedded into matter, having totally forgotten what its origin was. 
but she has these wonderful garments of the light of the sun, sun, star, moon, which she hides in a walnut shell. Incidentally, if you look at it, the walnut in its shell is an image of the human brain and skull. We have the two sides of the brain, left side, right side, we have two sides of the walnut shut inside the hollow skull. As if within our thinking we have the potentiality of discovering that which is lost about ourselves. And in the ball she meets her higher self, symbolized by the prince. And they fall in love with each other, in due course the love is established, they marry. The soul unites with its higher self who is able in due course to lead her back again from the realm from which she descended. That has got the whole picture. That the human being, that in you and me, which can say, I, is not your body. Your body is a temple into which that immortal spark can descend and live through it and go through all sorts of experiences and grow up in it but you, the real you, are an imperishable and immortal being a spiritual being belonging to a world of <coughs> spirit but what has happened in this these last centuries in this walnut of ours, this brain of ours is that we've so concentrated on the intellectual faculties which are linked with the left hemisphere of the brain that we've allowed the faculties of the right hemisphere of the brain which are the poetical, more feminine, sensitive, imaginative faculties to atrophy. We've so concentrated on the development of intellect in the mastering of matter intellect bound down completely to the senses that the possibility of imaginative vision that can explore into the higher worlds has been lost they've simply atrophied those faculties and the result is that the higher worlds the worlds of spirit the worlds of the elemental beings of nature that the old folk could see the gnomes, the fairies, the undines the realm of the angels God himself is all thrown into doubt because we can no longer see them because the faculties have gone to sleep this is why the Greeks in those days could see the gods they knew the kingdom of the great god Pan in nature as well as being so intellectually remarkable the two sides are still in balance with us we lost those faculties they've gone asleep but these faculties we've done wonderful things with our technology but what is happening in our time is that human mind is recovering this oneness vision the actual direct experience 
that the universe is mind. It's happening with more and more people. They call it the coming of the peak experience. An experience of breakthrough in consciousness. One remarkable example is uh, Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, coming out from behind the moon <coughs> and seeing Earth, this lovely orb of silver and blue floating in space, the <coughs> background of the stars, this majestic roof wetted with gold and fire. And seeing that, he would suddenly have a shift of consciousness, peak experience, when his thinking, his consciousness, shifted, and he became suddenly one with the whole, and knew by direct, immediate knowledge that the universe was a great mind, and that the whole of it was alive, and that the earth was truly a living creature, a living, sentient being with its own breathing, with its own bloodstream, its own thinking. And that man was not, as we feel, just a separate thing, an isolated, separate thing but that man is really one with this vast whole. Now this is with an example of direct experience. I quote the one man, Edgar Mitchell, who it was so powerful that thereupon, up in the skies, he dedicated the rest of his life to the founding of a center for parapsychology in California to waken people up to this tremendous truth. Because you see, it was an apprehending of <coughs> truth, direct, a truth as certain as your scientific investigations, but not the weary business of a hypothesis and a hundred experiments leading to another conclusion, but an apprehending of truth, of a higher truth, directly as if the mind can expand into the whole. Now, this is happening. More and more people are getting this experience. Direct and immediate knowledge, showing that the human being has the capacity for direct knowledge of higher levels of intelligence, far beyond what we can achieve. It's a great new adventure that's emerging. Now, as I say, what we've done is to lose the faculties of this right hemisphere of the brain. But the poets <coughs> have been able to make this breakthrough in consciousness. Let me quote from Coleridge. There is one mind, one omnipresent mind, omnipotent. His most holy name is love. 
proof of subliming import. This is the subliming man, his noontide majesty, himself to know as parts and proportions of one wondrous whole. This fraternizes man. You get that? That's the first thing. We are parts and proportions of one wondrous whole. And then he describes what modern man is like. Toy bewitched, made blind by lusts. Disinherited of soul. No common center, no common sire, <coughs> man knoweth. A sordid, solitary thing. Mid countless brethren with a lonely heart. Through courts and cities, the smooth, savage roams. A sordid, solitary thing mid countless brethren with a lonely heart through courts and cities the smooth savage roams feeling himself his own low self the whole we are smooth savages we are very well cultivated but there's something basically heathen about us feeling himself his own low self the whole you know about yourself there. When he, thy sacred sympathy, <coughs> might make the whole one self. When he, thy sacred sympathy, thy expanding of your sympathy and love, might make the whole one self. Self that no alien knows. Self far diffused as fancy's wing can carry, self spreading still, oblivious of its own, yet all of all possessing. This is faith. This the Messiah's destined victory. Now the concept there that it is possible for the human being shut in his own self somehow to step out and expand into the total vastness as Edgar Mitchell did. That's only Coleridge is only saying what happened to Mitchell. He could make the whole one self with a capital S. He writes it with a capital S. The whole with a capital W. Self that no alien knows. Nothing alien. Self far diffused as imagination's field can carry. Self spreading still. You could become one with the whole. Oblivious of its own, you don't own anything, but you possess everything. This, he says, is faith. And then an extraordinary last line. This, the Messiah's destined victory.
In other words, the real triumph of the Lord of all might and love is that the human beings, human beings having gone through, like the prodigal son, all the agony and ecstasy of egoism, of being embedded in the body, can take a step in consciousness and become one with the whole universe. Can you grasp, dear people, that we are dealing with a counterpart to our space exploration? We are shooting our rockets when they don't blow up round the universe, building space stations, but that's still physical. But we are talking now about the possibility of the human mind actually entering ethereal space, outside time. In which case consciousness can be immediately anywhere. It's a fantastic thought. And this is what the mystics have always known. The mystics and the initiates <coughs> and the illuminated ones have taken this step in consciousness, have shown that it's possible. And some have even been able to remember right back into the womb and beyond. Now our poet Traherne, one of the metaphysical poets in 1650, had the faculty of remembering right into his mother's womb what he was like then and beyond birth, backwards, into pre-existence. And he experienced then that you don't begin at conception, that you are already a highly developed being, so before birth. He knew it by direct experience. He writes in one of his poems, Before my sinews did my limbs conjoin, before I still to prize these living orbs my eyes, I was within a house I knew not, newly clothed with skin. You see, the embryo, obviously. Before he was in the embryo, he then says, Then was my soul my only all to me, before I had a body. Then was my soul my only all to me, a living, endless I. He scarce bounded with the side, whose power and act and essence was to see. I was an endless sphere of sight. Or an interminable orb of light, greater than that which made the days, a vital sun that spread abroad its rays, all life, all sense, a naked, simple, pure intelligence. Without restriction, then, did I behold the true ideas of all things.
that's what the human being is. We with our materialism feel that the newly born baby, this little puling thing, is a tiny little soul. It isn't, it's an exalted soul. Already profoundly developed, <coughs> beginning to narrow itself down into a sense-bound body. Can you grow for this and see that we're touching a completely different view of what life is about? We touch the concept of pre-existence. You were already there as a developed being before you were born. Yeah, let's have just the verse from uh, Wordsworth's great poem. Wordsworth was sensing that there was something that he was losing. There was a faculty and a vision into the life of things that he was losing. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting. And coming from afar, not in the entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God that is our home heaven lies about us in our infancy shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy but he beholds the light and whence it flows. He sees it in his joy. The youth who daily further from the east must travel still is nature's priest. And by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. Now the tendency is for people reading that poem to assume, well now we grown-ups, fully grown men, know that all that vision in youth was just an illusion and we've now really faced the stark fact that there is nothing but the physical world and the sense world the real truth is that the child still sees the light and the young person are still carrying something of that torch of that light that vision by the vision splendid is on his way attended and in the man it all fades what we are now doing what the emergence of the spiritual worldview, of the holistic worldview, is doing is frankly recovering the vision splendid. We are now seeing that what the child sees is not just an illusion of childhood, but is the great truth that we as we grow up don't lose. But more than that, and this is why our age is so exciting, it is becoming possible to so to intensify imagination 
that we can begin to recover this in you and in me is a thing that says I which is a droplet of divinity do let me say now too what I say is not any sort of dogma I'm asking you to believe I'm not trying to put over any religious stuff on you what we're doing is exploring ideas I'm inviting you to think ideas I'm not arguing about it I'm exploring and I'm speaking from the experience of the initiates who had the big experience I gave them the Edgar mission and the poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge and Cahan who have the same whose faculties of the right hemisphere of the brain are still so open that they can apprehend the higher world the higher reality by direct experience direct and certain knowledge and the excitement of our time is that more and more people are developing this scientific <coughs> even scientifically as it were of science of actually intensifying thinking beyond sense bound thinking so that they could really explore higher levels of wisdom and knowledge direct now we're getting the idea that our senses the five senses on which we rely are in fact filters to protect us from too much of the universe to shut us in T.S. Eliot says humankind cannot bear very much reality and man is in challenge and called on to explore not only space by space stations and rockets but inner space mental space ethereal space and here is an attempt by a man called Armstrong, Martin Armstrong in a poem called The Cage to express the thought that our senses are really filters to protect us from too much knowledge from the universe now will you with your imagination try to get this series of thoughts that pictures as well Man afraid to be alive shut his soul in senses five shuts his soul in senses five from fields of uncreated light into the crystal tower of sight <coughs> And from the roaring songs of space into the small flesh-carven place of the ear whose cave impounds only small and broken sounds and to his narrow sense of touch from strength that held the stars in touch
and from the warm ambrosial spice of flowers and fruits of paradise into the frail and fitful pile of scent and tasting, sweet and sour. And toiling for a sordid wage, there in his self-created cage. Ah, how safely barred is he from menace of eternity. You see, Armstrong had spotted <coughs> that really we can almost turn the senses inside out and release out into the universe. Sense free thinking which could become one with the whole of the universe. The roaring songs of space you could listen to you could listen, look at the celestial light there, beyond sense of touch, strength that held the stars in touch, the warm ambrosial spice of flowers and fruits of paradise. And furthermore, it means this whole picture, this holistic, holistic world picture, implies that the forms of nature that we see Birds, animals, plants, flowers, mountains, crystals are an expression of a realm of creative idea that really there are ideas, thoughts of God, if you like, which have expressed themselves into the wonderful artistry of nature. And that there therefore is another way of studying nature, of looking at nature, which is what the poets have, of looking into the being, the idea hidden within. Bird, plant, tree, water, crystal, snowflake. The poets are ones who've got this faculty still. You all have this faculty. When you're young, you've got it. And probably most of the company here can think of moments when out in the hills, out in the woods, suddenly you touch something more. And your sensible, rational mind says, Oh, that's nothing, that doesn't seem real. But something in you knows that you're touching the fairy world, the magical world, there's a magical <coughs> world of living idea that you can touch. When to the new eyes of thee all things thy immortal power near and far hiddenly to each other linked are that thou canst not stir a flower without troubling of a star, then seek no more, nor entering, touching this magical world there. When to the new eyes of thee all things by immortal power hiddenly 
to each other, near and far, to each other, linked Everything is linked into a huge oneness. That thou canst not stir a flower without troubling of a star. The wonderful conception that everything is this living oneness. You see, I'm on to a theme that goes on forever. And therefore, thank goodness I'm going to come to an end. I said, quite enough. I will just end on a quatrain, four lines, from Elroy Flecker, which is relevant to all of you. I began by saying we live in the most extraordinary world. All sorts of strange things are going to happen in the next generation of that, I'm sure. But it's a tremendous operation for cleansing this planet. This world of living being that the poetical consciousness begins to touch. A living, creative world which is really concerned with this planet and is doing something about it. We're sure, increasingly sure of this, that there really is an energy, a creative energy flooding in from the higher worlds to lift the frequency rate and cleanse the planet of its cruelty and its egoism. <coughs> Awake, awake, the world is young for all its weary years of thought. The starkest fights must still be fought. The most surprising songs be sung. That's what I'm really saying to you young people now, that the most surprising songs be sung. Your generation is going to get some most wonderful opportunities of consciousness beginning to open up into something new. It's terribly exciting. I think I had better stop. to think the thought. I repeat, I'm not doing dogma that you're meant to believe. There's no need to believe it at all. I'm asking you to experiment with the thought, live with the thought. The thought is that, the, I repeat, the thing in you that can say I is an immortal, eternal being, spiritual. And is coming down and surging <coughs> in the limitations of the sense-bound body. 
actually you can see this that if it's eternal the I in each of us has used this planet as a training ground this is a training school this planet over the whole of evolution and all civilizations you see from that what I touched on is the fact that you were there before you were born. In other words, the first thought is that you're not your body. Your body is a temple, is a protective instrument. Your sense-bound body and your brain is an instrument into which a wide-ranging ethereal being can come and for a while sojourn in limitation and separation. The result of that separation is that you develop a kind of freedom. We're all separate and free. We're no longer <coughs> experiencing the thought of God. Like the angels do, the angels are part of God's thought. But we've come down, separated into the body. And the picture is that that soul of yours, which you remember from Trahan's experience, was already a developed entity before it was born. So you ask, well, where did it get its development? Where was it trained? And much the simplest answer is that it's gone through the school of Earth, through many classes, through each civilization. And you come at the postulate of repeated Earth lives, reincarnation. Because you see, it's just as silly to think that you people could qualify for a university, for the uni take the university exams, by dropping into the third form for one term. It's ludicrous. In other words, we've gone through the long education. Well, that means the, where each of us, the theory is, where each of us a droplet of the divine, of the same divinity. Do you see that point? The God in you is the same God as is in me. But you've gone through a different set of experiences from what I have, or you, or you, or you. This wonderful thought that we are all cells of one great divine body. But each cell has gone through very different experiences. And in this epoch, above all in the West, the Anglo-Saxon race, has had a very special <coughs> spiritual task of using all its faculties to plunge deep into matter and analyze matter, which it's done until it's analyzed solid matter away into sheer energy. And we discovered, as the scientists have done, that everything is one whole. Well, now that means, of course, this plunge into matter does imply that in our time, this last century or two, and very much in our depths of rational materialist thinking, most of us lose this vision. One person after another, for some reason, gets this peak experience and begins to recover it. And also, and this is what's exciting, the intellectual scientists the intellect which has lost the spirit is now recovering it 
by investigations which show that everything is energy and all energy is alive and all energy is part of the vast whole. So the greatest scientists are now arriving at the same knowledge. Uh, I think Nigel mentioned our conference, Weekend Plus conference we do each year on mystics and scientists in which at Winchester we get some of the greatest scientists alive to come onto the same platform as the mystics because they're all talking the same language. They're both of them seeing this holistic vision. And so the point that you've reached and I've reached and we've all reached is naturally different. But we're all waking up to the fact that there is something quite different from merely gratifying sense and ego, but a different exploration on which we can start off. But thanks for raising the point, Stephen. Behind that. Why the uh, plunge to matter in the first place? Why, why the plunge to matter in the first place? Well, the whole legend of the fall is... It's absolutely central. It's too big a subject to go very far with, but I think you would suggest this, that possibly even that the divine creator, God, the source that created nature, really wanted some part of nature which didn't just repeat the divine pattern over and over, but itself began to become creative. It's a very big thought, this, and we certainly won't argue it, but uh, the fall of man involves from being a spiritual being in the spiritual world, symbolized by Eden Garden, primal innocence, <coughs> that we are thrown out of that garden and we do fall to earth, we plunge into the experience of this world, and we now begin to pull out back again, not back to Eden Garden, you can't go back to the innocence, but on to what's called the New Jerusalem. It's a tremendous cycle of experience. But to think this, it implies that humanity is possibly a unique point in the universe. This planet, this precious planet, carries this cargo of self-consciousness, this point where nature has become self-conscious and can reflect the divine ideas in thought. But man, by breaking off away <coughs> from the divine worlds, has been allowed to achieve freedom. In other words, here is the possibility on this planet that we, in creative freedom, begin consciously to work with God as co-creators. This implies something quite new in the universe. This is why this planet is so interesting. It's a quite different picture from the Darwinian picture of chance natural selection. That man is a great experiment of the gods, having reached a critical point when this part of nature 
begins to be able itself to be creative and therefore come back to working with God not merely gratifying ego and making a profit and all that but really beginning to work creatively and this planet begins to come alive again I'm just catching a verse I want to say there man treads softly on the earth what looks like dust is also stuff of which galaxies are made the green of earth's great trees and simple grasses is same music played in red throughout our trunks and limbs. O oh, earth, living, breathing, thinking earth, the day we treasure you as you have treasured us, humanness is born. And throughout all light, a radiance leaps from star to star, seeing a sun is born, humanity. And you get from that the hint that a cosmic event is happening on this planet. That we, humanity is really not yet born. Humanity as a planetary being stands on the threshold of a birth. That's what's happening in this generation. It's an absolutely terrific thought. It marries science and religion and mysticism in one great deed that humanity is doing, being done to humanity. Coleridge follows in the Platonic line of thought uh, in that man is the reflection of the absolute. Does the system you are exploring um, adopt this platonic approach, i.e. that as our consciousness expands to be a greater whole, become a better reflection of this world that you see beyond this extraterrestrial world? But isn't it rather paradoxical that as our consciousness expands through becoming older, we lose the ability to contact it? Indeed, what is happening now is that we are recovering the concept of the Platonic idea. You see, that the realization that what the divine mind does is first create the archetypal living ideas behind everything. Read the book of Genesis and you'll see that in the first chapter it puts it like this that God created the birds all after their kind and the beasts after their kind and the plants after their kind and man male, female created he then and then in the beginning of chapter 2 it says of course there weren't any plants on the earth because it had rained and then creation apparently comes again and he creates plants and animals 
after that kind implies that the divine creative mind creates first the group ego the type the being the archetype of swallows or lions or cats or human beings after that kind it creates the archetypal idea an exalted angelic being who later is realized and externalized <coughs> into physical form now we need to prove this but hold it as a thought it means the wonderful thing when we look at those plants when we look at those trees the sense eye is seeing an external form but the eye of the mind the so called third eye the unicorn's form is able to see into the idea which is the expression of that archetype within things but then we get the greatest of thoughts which is the first in creation the creator creates the archetype of man let us make man after our own image male and female make he them try to grasp this notion the archetype is the most exalted archangelical being the image of man like unto God which is not only this body remember that God after all is spirit of invisible ubiquitous spirit focalizing thought and emotional love and creative volition a being which is like unto God is also therefore essentially spirit invisible ubiquitous focalizing thought feeling will but using then a body in which this head of ours focalizes thought and the heart focalizes feeling and the limbs focalize will where this that's the temple for carrying the God in us but hold the idea of the archetype the archetype of man with this view is made first in creation man is the last to appear in physical creation and therefore our grandfathers fell for the concept that therefore as it appears last it must grow out of the apes not at all man is the first in creation as archetype but the last to manifest in physical form and the whole process is getting nearer and nearer to the archetype hence the importance of our thought about repeated earth lives every life you are getting nearer and nearer to the realization the making real of that architect. Now think in enough more lives what all you young men and young women are going to be as athletes, as artists, as lovers, as thinkers, and as creators. When we get each time nearer to the realization of that perfect archetype now the great ones like Leonardo for instance were clearly very close to it 
probably in Jesus Christ that is the one time that the absolutely perfect realization of the physical spiritual archetype took place in the Buddha it appears again and we are gradually approaching that that's what the great education on earth is about and therefore Plato comes into his own acting today now the platonic idea is very important thank you for raising that can I just say Mr George so thank you very much for the passion and the cohesion um, of what you said um, you left a very remarkable impression indeed thank you very much thank you.